Hello, and welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. Hi, I'm Donya. How are you guys doing today? I hope you guys are having a good Sunday, and we have a great show for you today. Yes, we do. Today, is, today our guest is Kevin Levine. He's a, a lecturer, a historian, and a Civil War author. He's a visiting instructor of American Studies at the American Antiquarian Society, and he's been a writer for the New York Times, the Atlantic, Smithsonian, and the Daily Beast. He's you know, written pieces about the Civil War. Um, right, I want to do a little bit of house, housekeeping for this particular topic, because I see that Twitter has been twitching on this one already. Yes, it has. So what, <laughs> so what Kevin, Damia, and I will be discussing today, it, we're not saying that, African, that enslaved African-American males weren't, you know, that they weren't part of the Confederate Army. What we're going to be discussing is Kevin's book and the capacity in which they served. Um, that's the topic that's going to actually be under discussion. And for those, who, for those of you who haven't seen it, this is Kevin's book. And it's called Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Hey, Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing well. I'm so glad to finally get to meet you. Um, I've been reading your book, and it is awesome. And yes, Brian and I did get kind of, th kind of thrown for a loop when you had one of our family members in there. <laughs> so we're like, oh, God, here we go. We can never run. But um, why don't you quick, just briefly, tell us about you and what it is that you do, and then we'll get into the questions as far as the show is concerned. Sure, yeah. Um, real fast, I, I, my background is I'm an educator. I've taught on the college and high school level. Right now, just to make one correction, uh, when I taught at the American Antiquarian Society, that was a couple of years back. So I'm now teaching uh, once again on the high school level at a local private school, which I really enjoy. And over the last uh, 15 plus years, in addition to teaching, I've also dabbled in uh, writing about the Civil War and blogging. I've been blogging since 2005. Uh, and I've also had the opportunity to publish in various places, including two books. And obviously the most recent one is the one we're going to talk about today. So. Um, you know, everything is an extension of my my fascination with uh, the Civil War era. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, I have to ask, how did um, what was it about the Civil War as a subject that really interested you? Yeah. That, that's a good question. Um, it's hard to pin it down, but I guess my first exposure was back in roughly 1994. Uh, I, long story short, I was finishing a master's degree in, of all things, philosophy at the University of Maryland uh, near DC. And my advisor lived out near uh, the Antietam battlefield. And on one of my first visits, um, I, you know, he gave me some, some ideas of places to visit while, while I was traveling out in that area. Uh, I used to dog sit for him when he was away. And he said, go visit the Antietam battlefield. And I had never thought about the Civil War before. I don't remember learning anything about uh, the Civil War in high school, but it was spending a few hours. And it wasn't so much the battle itself, but it was the stories uh, that I, I heard about. And it was also, I think, the connection to place that was really important. And I think that stuck with me over time. It's um, For me, it's as much about trying to connect people to place as it is sort of sharing stories as a result of, you know, years of research. But um, but that was the beginning of it. And, um, and it just sort of grew from there. Well, I have to admit, I mean, I was really interested about the, the whole topic and the subject. Um, I had 
started reading your previous book and was really impressed with that too. But I have to admit that I did laugh because the very first name, and I think it was in the introduction, the very first yeah. name that appeared in the book was a man yeah. called, an enslaver called Edmund Ruffin. Yeah. Ruffin, sorry, out of King and Queen County, um, Virginia. And I mean, I had to laugh because he's a cousin. He's an ancestral cousin <laughs> through my room. So I thought, what oh, okay. to have? <laughs> <laughs> so I knew that this book was going to work, work for me on many, many levels. Yeah. And speaking of Edmund, because you actually did a, real, um, did a really good job turning him into a 360-degree person, um, loads and loads of depth and dimension, because it's really easy to just flat-out demonize people. And mm -hmm. I thought that you gave him and everyone else pretty, pretty fair shift. And I was wondering what kind of resources and repositories and archives did you, did you visit and access to be able to really develop people's stories? Yeah, so I, I, first of all, I appreciate that. There are really, the book is divided into two sections. The first half of the book, roughly, um, is sort of focused on the war itself. Or if you want to sort of take it a little bit further, it's focused on the, the people who lived through the war years between 1861 and 1865. And I have to say that, you know, it was to, to get at the relationship between master and slave within the context of the Confederate Army, the relationship between slave owners and what they would have called body servants, what I call camp slaves, was difficult to get at for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, in terms of archival material that allows us to interpret the lives of these enslaved men, that's, I mean, that is almost impossible to uncover, right? I, I was able to find a couple of accounts of enslaved men, body servants, um, writing home. And I think in many of these cases, in, in the few cases I found, uh, they were probably dictating letters to their owners to be sent back to their families. So in terms of, uh, you know, documents, letters, you know, uh, written material from enslaved men, that's almost impossible to find for the obvious reasons you're dealing with high liter illiteracy rates. And so to get at the relationship itself or to try to understand both parties, which I try to do, you're almost exclusively relying on the letters and diaries of these Confederate officers who bring these body servants with them uh, into the Confederate Army at different times during the war. And some of them, you know, some of them write about these uh, body servants in passing. Um, a few of them uh, write about them over time. So you can follow them over the course of their military career. You can follow them sort of, um, you can follow the, what, the relationship between these two men evolving. Uh, I would describe it as um, as expanding in some cases, contracting, uh, being broken entirely. So what I mean by that is um, that I was interested in trying to figure out to what extent did the master-slave relationship evolve during the war? We're used to thinking about it in the context of the plantation on the home front. But what happens when you take that relationship and pluck it out of something that was known, that could be set and reinforced by, by the master over time, and what happens when you place it into a completely unknown landscape, um, the Confederate Army? And so you watch as body servants uh, push for increased privileges. Some of them earn money in camp. Um, some of them uh, are away for periods of time, running errands for their master. Sometimes, of course, masters have to push back on their camp slaves, uh, who they believe have, have you know, sort of pushed them too far, and they do so in very violent ways. And sometimes you watch as that relationship is, is, is broken altogether with enslaved men running off um, at various points in time, either to the Union Army 
uh, that's nearby or just running off to gain their freedom, you know, by any means. Um, so the, the kinds of materials, to get back to your question, the kinds of materials that I relied on are, you know, I think what most Civil War historians rely on when you're trying to get at the lives of Confederate officers, and those are diaries, letters in various archives, various repositories. I have to say, however, that I relied mainly on published materials, and I did that for a very specific reason. There are some archival materials in there, but I wanted to make sure that anyone who wanted to follow up on, you know, a, a reference, um, that I make in the book is able to do so. Because I think one of the problems with this subject, I think the two of you were sort of hinting at this, it's so incredibly controversial that I wanna make sure that people can follow my footsteps as much as possible. And so that was one of the reasons why I relied on a number of, of really good published accounts, Confederate letters, diaries, that really dig in uh, to their connection to these body servants uh, during the war. So again, because, you know, it is a very controversial subject, you are just doing your best to do your due diligence. And as you said, and also, also transparency, which I'm yeah. going to have to admit doesn't necessarily work on the flip side of the argument. But you segued into um, kind of my next question, and then I'll hand over to Dania. Um, you did a wonderful job, again, uh, discussing the relationship of Silas Chan uh, Chandler with his, with his young enslaver. I believe they came from, ten was it Tennessee or Kentucky? Oh, oh West Point, Mississippi. West Point, Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah, they that came was from it. Mississippi. Even further. Originally Virginia. Right. Silas was born in Virginia to the Chandler family. Yeah, he may end up being yet, yeah. another, yet another cousin. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what I wanted to broach with you is really what we're talking about are three very different viewpoints. Uh -huh. And they, they are viewpoints. And you have the enslaved men's viewpoint and their motivation and where they're coming from. You have their enslavers viewpoint and where they're coming from. And then you have, I guess, what we can call the Neo-Confederates viewpoint and where they're trying to come, to come from. from. Yeah. So, so yeah. using Silas as an example, I think of planting, whether it's a plantation or a farm, I think of them as forced labor camps because yep. you can't go anywhere without a slip of paper to say you can leave and your, your life is just totally controlled. That's right. That's right. So with enslaved family members back on a farm or a plantation, I mean, how realistic was it for an enslaved man to turn around and say, well, no, I don't want to go fight you. Yeah, that's a really, that's a, a really good question and a, and a difficult one to, to answer because of course, you know, where would you go to find any kind of record? Um, that would sort of capture the attitudes of enslaved men um, you know, at that moment that you're getting at, right? That uh, mm -hmm. the, the moment where the enslaved individual says, you know what, I think I'd rather stay here with my, my family, right? Rather than go off to war. It's not my war, it's your war, right? Um, and so you can imagine very, um, there are very few, well, I, I don't have any accounts, I, I should say, of anything that captures that moment. I will say, however, because you're getting at, I think, something really interesting in the context of Silas, and I think these body servants as a whole, I mean, we don't have any accounts from body servants, or I should say very, very few from during the war. But of course, as you know, you know, after the war, former, former body servants, former camp slaves are, are central to the whole lost cause memory of the Confederacy and the Civil War generally. And so, you know, they have any number of opportunities after the war to talk about um, how they saw the war and their role in it, right? And so, of course, 
after the war because they're playing into this lost cause narrative of loyal slaves. They were loyal to their masters during the war. They were loyal to the Confederacy until the very end. Um, these these former you know formerly enslaved men you know exaggerate the extent to which they fall into that narrative. They are they are they are over the top uh, in terms of wanting. Uh, their former white co comrades, if you will, their former masters, and white Southerners generally after the war, to see them as loyal, either because they want to gain something out of it, they want a pension perhaps, or um, they're attending a Confederate veterans reunion, um, that they are very willing uh, in, in many cases to play into that game. But, you know, you have to imagine that that these very same men would have had very different uh, attitudes during the war, because in many cases uh, they were leaving their families, they were leaving their wives and children, um, as their masters were doing as well. And Silas and Andrew Chandler, you know, the, the famous photograph that, of course, is featured on the cover of the book, they're a perfect example because Silas does leave a wife back home, and, and by the middle of the war he has a newborn child. And of course, today, with all the myth making about this issue, um, the fact that Silas remains with Andrew through the 1863, through Andrew's wounding, and then after Andrew's wounded at the Battle of Chickamauga, escorts him back home, they're able to look at that and say, the Neo-Confederates, hey, he had every opportunity to escape. Uh, why did he bring his master back home? Well, there's a loyal slave for you. There is the, there is the perfect example for the Neo-Confederates today of the loyal slave. They, off, they, of course, uh, completely ignore the fact that Silas had a wife and child back home. So the, the, you know, the motivation here for anything that an enslaved man does or doesn't do during the war is incredibly complex. And I wanted to try as much as possible to capture that, given, however, as I've been saying, that we are looking at this through the lens of, of white men. And that is fraught with all kinds of problems, as both of you know. I was going to say because the two of us, we, we know how slavery works. So in my in my mind, in terms of a motivational factor, if you're an enslaved you know enslaved camp camp slave or body servant, you know if you abandoned your Confederate master for whatever reason, whether you ran to the North, the Union, whatever you're going to do, you were also at at the same time if you had a family. You were abandoning them too, and we know how vindictive enslavers could be. Yes, because your, you know, your family could be sold apart in a heartbeat. Yes, yes. So, um, right. you made you made a comment because as I was reading the book, like you, you really caught my attention from the very beginning. So I think when we first started to um, advertise about the book, we, I kind of came across someone who felt the opposite of what you wrote. Mm -hmm. Um. So I want to be a devil's advocate for them. That's that's what I'm doing. Yes, that's, yes. But in the same instance, before I even become that devil's advocate, I, I'm not sure what I believe yet. And the mm -hmm. reason why I say it like that is because as historians or researchers or genealogists, we tend to look at things totally different from everybody else we literally look at it like you just said silas had had children had a wife had people that he had to get back home to and make sure that they were okay we're talking about mississippi one of the most treacherous places yeah, for enslaved right. folks during that time period so why would he not 
want to make sure that he does everything properly so that he can go home. But that's the thought of you and I, you know, that's how we think. How would make on the other, on the flip side, what makes you think that he wasn't just, he, it wasn't, had nothing to do with that, that he actually was, what would make someone think just the opposite is my question. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's a reasonable <laughs> question to ask. Um, and I, and I look, and I, I want to stress that I don't, you know, as a historian, as someone who um, is sort of, who, who appreciates, you know, multiple perspectives on any subject, I certainly don't want to claim that that this book is the last word on this subject. I, I think there are a number of places uh, that I would like to see more research done moving forward. Uh, saying that, I, I also want to suggest that I also think it's important for historians to acknowledge where the evidence ends. And so in the case of Silas, or in the case of most of the men that I write about, um, I, in the end, I'd like to think that I did my best in trying at least to frame the relationship around what both of you, I think, are sort of honing in on, which is the nature of the master-slave dynamic, and that is coercion, right? Yeah. And so, you know, there are, there, there, I thought you were going to go to a different point in the book. I think what, what I'm surprised that people haven't pushed back on more there are a couple places where I try to suggest, or I suggest, um, that in fact there are moments of what you might want to describe as genuine other regarding concern. So there are moments in a couple of these uh, accounts, and again, these are accounts written by white men, where they describe taking care of their, their body servant when he's sick over the course of a couple days or a couple weeks. There are accounts of enslaved men taking care of their masters. Now, I don't want to suggest for a moment that those are examples of, of genuine friendship. I don't even know what it means uh, to suggest that, that master and slave can be friends within this, given how we define the relationship. But can we at least acknowledge that both of them experienced some of the same things? They were away from family for extended periods of time. They experienced long marches. They experienced bad weather. They experienced not having enough food at different times. And of course, they experienced being uh, illness, right? Disease. It, 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 was there space in this relationship for this other regarding concern? And I would suggest the answer has to be yes. But at the same time, I would really caution anyone uh, to take it any further than that and suggest that we're talking about anything that the neo-Confederates want to get at today, which is this notion of loyalty which is this narrow um, flattening out of the complexity that I don't think we'll ever get at when it comes to understanding the motivations of both parties during the war at different times. Um, the, 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 the evidence, the archival um, material is just simply not there. Um, and I'm willing to leave it at that and, and perhaps leave enough space where other people might you know, grab onto and, and run with it to the extent that they can. But that actually leads me to, um, well, that's the perfect segue, because one of the questions I wanted to ask is, with, with that dynamic that you've just discussed, and it is multi-layered, and it's nuanced, and it's complicated, and it's, you know, it's, it's hard for us to get into the skin of it, why wouldn't the Confederacy have led with that fact, that you have two different groups of people, black and white, free, um, monsters and enslaved, experiencing the same thing, even, including the same deprivations? 
why wouldn't the Confederacy have immediately led with that? It would have been, even for propaganda purposes, that would have been perfect for them. But as far as I'm aware, they, they never did. They, they never, I'm just trying to understand your question. Uh, what do you think the Confederacy would have, was trying to, would have done with that? What was their goal? Well, kind of recognize the contribution that enslaved men made ah. while, while they were there. And yeah. you know, to, to basically recognize the fact that even though they may not have held rifles or guns, yeah. they were still, both parties were still experiencing the same deprivations. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I think to a certain extent they do. I think I think the lost cause is an attempt to do that. The problem, of course, is what, what the lost cause narrative is an attempt to do after the war is, is simply explain defeat, right? Uh, and explain, you know, or try to continue to justify the Confederate cause. They may have been defeated, but the cause itself remained just. They weren't fighting to preserve slavery. It was a constitutional dispute. Their slaves remained loyal to them, um, you know, to the Confederacy to the end. Um, so, so I think to a certain extent, the, the Confederacy does acknowledge the importance of, of, of enslaved men during the war because they, they go to such an extent to mobilize them during the war, right? I mean, as I suggest in the first chapter, the first two chapters, um, you know, black men, enslaved men are absolutely the foundation of, uh, or to use Alexander Stevens's language, the cornerstone of the Confederate army. Uh, enslaved men is what makes the Confederate war effort possible, both on the home front and in the army itself. I mean, if you have now a, an understanding of, of, say, for example, Lee's army in the summer of 1863, numbering somewhere around 75,000, and acknowledging that perhaps that army included 10,000 enslaved men, then you have a very different picture of just how Confederate armies operated. Uh, Confederate armies, when you acknowledge this, I think you have to sort of appreciate that they were not able to camp efficiently, march efficiently, or even engage in battle efficiently without enslaved labor. So I think in the sense that the Confederacy mobilized uh, tens of thousands of enslaved men throughout the war, I think to that extent, they did acknowledge um, the crucial role they were playing. In fact, that does sort of get to the, to the, the, the important point at the end of the war, which is that the Confederates did engage in a very public and a very divisive debate between mid-1864 and the end of the war in the spring of 1865 as to whether to enlist slaves as soldiers. And that, of course, um, takes place throughout the Confederacy. Uh, no one who engages in this debate, regardless of their position on this issue, ever acknowledges that enslaved men were already fighting as soldiers. So that completely undercuts any claims today uh, from neo-Confederates that they did fight uh, throughout the war. Um, but it also, I think, highlights the distinction or difference between the role that enslaved men played up until 1864 and the possibility that they may have been able to perform a very, very different role as soldiers, you know, uh, yeah. assuming that uh, the, the Congress would pass legislation, which of course they did in the final weeks, but it didn't make any difference to the end of the war, right? right. Um, so I, I hope that answers the question. Yes, yeah, no, it does, thank you. So uh, one of the things that um, caught me was like in the introduction and how you discussed the, um, the form what is the name of this form? I'm looking at it. I got it highlighted and everything. Um, a pension the, form, maybe? Yeah, the, the application of indigent servants. Yeah. Of, yeah that yeah. particular form. Um, 
that caught my attention because in here you said, you know, they had to, to demonstrate their loyalty to their former masters and so on and so forth. I mean, I guess what one of the things that my cousin was talking about, he was like, well, what makes you think they didn't do it just because they wanted to do it? This form kind of shows why they didn't do it because they wanted to. They did it because they had to in order to move forward. So I know I'm trying to be devil's advocate, but you throwing out things out there that allows me to say, well, this is why. Because this form, it literally kind of puts out there what you were talking about. Yeah, the, the, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you can go on the Internet today and that's, you know, obviously the Internet is a big problem when it comes to this to this subject. Uh, but there are plenty of people out there who believe that these pensions are evidence that black men fought as soldiers, right, in the Confederate Army. And you're shaking your head, which is obviously the right the right reaction here. And what's fascinating, of course, is that it doesn't actually take much um, time to get at the truth here. Right. In fact, as you were noting, it says it right on the document, right? It tells you on the document what this is for. And these are for uh, the five former Confederate states, Mississippi in the late 1870s, the other four in the 1920s, uh, passed legislation to, to give, in most cases, former camp slaves, former body servants, pensions. And I, I have a whole interpretation as to why I think they did this. Um, but it's very clear that these pensions were not being given, they were not issued to former soldiers. In fact, for every pension application that is approved for a former slave, you can find uh, any number of, of, of examples where they are rejected because the individual was applying as a soldier. And you, know, and you can find this in, in all five states where they write back, where the pension board writes back and says, um, you're just mistaken. You, you weren't present as a soldier. You were present as a as a body servant. And so in the case of I think uh, that was referenced in the case of Silas Chandler uh, from Mississippi or there's a couple other. Yeah, I think it was Silas. Mm -hmm. um, that's Mississippi's uh, pension document. Uh, let me also mention because we're, we're on a genealogy show. And, and so I think it's, it's probably not a stretch to imagine that some researchers, when they're researching their family's history, uh, might come across a document like this. Uh, and it may be confusing. And I think what's so important here to just reinforce is that even if you have the document itself in front of you, if you don't have the broader historical context, if you can't fit it within a broader understanding of why these pensions were issued, the role of enslaved men during the war itself, uh, there's a good chance you may be led astray. And I bring this up because if you find a document in a North Carolina archive, if you're looking for an African-American ancestor in North Carolina, you may find a pension application. And the reason I'm using North Carolina as an example is because North Carolina is one, is the only one of the five former Confederate states that issues these pensions to former, uh, former enslaved men that that uses the same document as they use for real soldiers, right? So if you're looking at a North Carolina document, there's no difference between what a formerly enslaved man would have filled out and a former actual Confederate soldier. Although in the former, there are some differences in terms of the information that's provided. But if you're not well-versed in this, it's easy to be, like I said, it's easy to be led astray. Yeah. 
I hope that made sense. It, it does. <laughs> it, did. it really it did. Did. It does. And actually, while I have you, um, one question that we actually received in advance of the show, the one that I sent you on, on Twitter, was what was the difference, if any, between serving with a Confederate militia and conserving, serving as part of a Confederate unit? Yeah, so, so that's a good question. And so there were state militias organized in, in various Confederate states before the war. Um, and as far as I understand, some of them are actually integrated into the Confederate Army eventually. They become, they get a Confederate uh, unit designation. Um, the most famous example of this is, the, is what was called the Louisiana Native Guard, um, which was organized in 1861, mainly by free uh, Creoles, African-Americans in the New Orleans area. And they actually pledged their allegiance to the Confederacy. Now, this was a unit raised um, in Louisiana. It was not a Confederate unit. And, you know, there's a lot of confusion about this. Um, but, you know, look, New Orleans is, is incredibly complex, um, you know, in a, along racial lines for the obvious reasons, given who lives there. But there's a free, you know, Creole African-American population that likely wanted to maintain its status, uh, the wealth that they had been able to accumulate up until that point, And they likely thought that allegiance to the Confederacy was one way to maintain this. Um, but this specific state militia unit was never accepted into the Confederacy itself. It was disbanded in 1862 when the Union Navy took control of New Orleans, and many of them ended up um, joining United States Color Troop regiments in the United States Army. Um, so the difference is, you know, one is organized on the state level. They have their own set of rules, right, and regulations. The other is obviously the, the regular Confederate military. And for the purposes of the book, I was concerned mainly about, well, overwhelmingly about the Confederate Army, specifically because the myth itself uh, today is about the Confederate Army. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's the basic distinction. So something that you wrote about in the book, and I hadn't even connected the dots. I, as Donnie came into the studio today, I'm like, I don't know how I managed to miss that. You did a really good job of making the link between the resurgence in the neo-Confederate narrative and the airing of roots. If you wouldn't mind yeah. just spending a little time talking about that. Yeah, so I want to give my uh, some credit here to a, um, a local researcher in Washington, D.C., an activist even, uh, Asa Gordon, who uncovered this. And, um, and it fits into a broader narrative. So I think it's important to remember that up until roughly the 19, um, through, through the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement, the, the overwhelming sort of uh, narrative about enslaved men during the war um, was framed as just that, loyal slaves. This, is, this was part of the loyal slave narrative. Um, there are no references to black Confederate soldiers during the war, even after the war. I mean, white Southerners are consistent uh, throughout uh, the post-war period about the status of enslaved men uh, during the war itself. But this change is coming out of the civil rights movement um, because the memory of the war is evolving, right? Uh, it's coming out of the civil rights movement that you begin to see more historians now working on topics like emancipation. They're focusing on, uh, on, on slavery more and more, uh, especially in connection to the Civil War and especially the history of United States colored troops. That's absolutely crucial in all of this. And historic sites are beginning, just beginning, uh, to address the issues of slavery if they're relevant to their specific, uh, their specific site. 
but what's interesting is that in 1977, Roots airs, and I think it's important to keep in mind that it's uh, it's an incredibly large white population that that watches that. And I think you have to also appreciate the extent to which the account of slavery in Roots differs dramatically from what most white Americans would have understood as the history of slavery. I think for most white Americans, you know, think of Gone with the Wind. Think of Mammy, right? The, the image of the loyal slave. I think that's still driving a lot of popular memory of the war into the 1970s. But Roots really sort of undercuts that. And especially, you know, more focus on United States colored troops at the very same time, you begin to see some rumblings in the Sons of Confederate Veterans. And especially in response to Roots, their concern is if more people now are talking about Black Union soldiers, then how can we continue to talk about and honor our Confederate ancestors without having to answer to the problem of slavery, right? For most white Southerners, you could actually go most of the 20th century without having to talk about slavery. Most white Americans, North and South, when they thought about the Civil War, the Civil War was a war between white men on both sides, brave white men on both sides, fighting for their respective causes, but we're not gonna talk that much mm. about what those respective causes were. Right. That's, that's the reunion narrative, right? Uh, that white Americans um, embrace throughout much of the 20th century. So for white Southerners, they're feeling a bit more defensive after Roots because again, how can they defend the Confederacy and their ancestors when, they're, when emancipation and Black Union soldiers are being pushed in their face more and more. So they start to talk about the importance of finding their own Black Confederate soldiers. And so there are some sort of, um, um, you know, through their own organizations, memos that go back and forth. And they commission a book to be written about this subject. They start writing about this in, um, in their own magazine, Confederate Veteran Magazine. And for the first few years, uh, through the 80s, in fact, and even early 90s, um, this remains sort of confined to their own community. This is not making much of an impact on the broader stage, but it's the internet that really does sort of um, give this black Confederate myth a new life because of course, um, as you both know, um, the internet allows anyone to be his or, her, his or her own historian. And so it has democratized uh, the historical process, right? In terms of who can post on the internet, and what you can find on the internet, and that is both a blessing and a curse, as far as as far as I'm concerned. It is. It is. I agree. Um, I have a I have a question. So you talked about um, there was you gave a story in here about one guy who a, a group of troops who ended up being around a group of black. I guess they were black Confederates. Um, they they were. They were, you know, camp slaves. Yeah, yeah. And um, basically it said another base stater pinned a black man to the ground with his bayonet before declaring, here goes a thousand dollars. I wish this was his master. If they were trying to, quote unquote, free yeah. those enslaved, why would he do that? I, uh, I didn't understand that. Yeah, no, no, I think that's uh, that's that's a great that's a great question. So that account comes at the Battle of First Bull Run, uh, July of 1861, the yes. first major battle just outside of DC in, in Northern Virginia. And I think, um, although I don't really sort of explore it in this regard, I think you do bring up 
another really good another really good point and that is that we i live in boston i've, I've been here since 2011 and you know i can walk around downtown boston and i can look at any number of statues uh, that celebrate Boston's white abolitionists, uh, William Lloyd Garrison and others, Charles Sumner, the great Republican. Uh, of course, Boston also had, before the war, was one of the centers of the black abolitionist movement, but you wouldn't know that here in Boston because there really is nothing uh, that sort of openly celebrates the, the, the most important black abolitionists here. That's a different point, that's a different show, I think. Um, but I think the point I would want to make here is, or what I want to get at here is, there is a myth um, that I think even Northerners embrace to a certain extent. Uh, that is that, you know, that everyone who joins the U.S. Army in 1861 is, is fighting to end slavery, is, is fighting to, uh, to make black people equal to white people. And I think one of the things that account speaks to is that there is a deep-seated racism that is pervasive throughout the United States in 1861. It's pervasive in the South, reinforced by the institution of slavery, and it's reinforced in the North through various kinds of discrimination uh, that African-Americans face in various states. I think the overwhelming number of the loyal white citizenry of the United States in 1861, and I think even to a great extent, even by 1865, are fighting this war to save the Union, right? This is not a war that is uh, an attempt to uh, to address the issue of uh, of equality, of, of racial equality in the United States. Uh, I think it's important to remember that um, that the war could have ended without slavery being abolished. Remember, if the war ends before the end of December of 1862, um, the Union is saved as far as Lincoln is concerned, and that's everything he had been ask, asking for. The Emancipation Proclamation only goes into effect on January 1st, 1863. So the war could have ended uh, without slavery being abolished. And I think the vast majority of, again, white Northerners would have been perfectly happy with that. Um, if, they, if they come to believing that slavery should end, they almost, they, they typically do so because they believe it will end the war faster. So maybe you can think of that in the context of this account of Bull Run, if you if you kill or if you if you destroy what the what the slave owner owns right uh his property if you will then perhaps that um that damages the confederate war effort entirely and gets us closer to the war ending sooner than later um but i think in the end that account speaks to just the violence that enslaved men experienced during the war um you know, both enslaved men in the Confederate Army, but especially enslaved men, women, and children throughout the South during the war. I mean, just think of, um, you know, just think of the, there's plenty of new research on the reality of contraband camps uh, during the war. These are, these are camps where, that are set up by the U.S. Army uh, that take in uh, fugitive slaves, usually in the path of the Union Army. Some of the men, of course, end up serving in the United States Army. But women and children experience all kinds of abuse in these camps. And so I guess the point I'm trying to make here overall is that this narrative of slavery to freedom that I think we love to embrace as Americans, it, it helps us to frame this war, is incredibly simplistic. That narrative of slavery to freedom was fraught with, um, 
with with violence, with disease. And it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a straight shot from slavery to freedom. You could be uh, enslaved. You could think you have your freedom at some point, and perhaps you lose it again. Um, so I think that account early in the war speaks to just the situation that African-Americans find themselves in, which is, you know, it's, it's incredibly complex. And I'll just sort of finish this with, with, the, with this point that, you know, we tend to think, I, I guess what I would want to suggest here is that enslaved men in the Confederate Army, they don't just survive slavery, they survive the war. Or I should say they have to survive the war to survive slavery. And that's something I think that most people don't quite appreciate it when it comes to um, when it comes to the subject of, of body servants and camp slaves. Yeah, that that's deep. Because again, one of the things that really struck me in what you covered in the book was again the focus on neo Confederates about the fact that, and even Confederates at the time, that the enslaved men were taking the bodies of their dead monsters back home. And they were, they were using yeah. that as like a loyalty example of loyalty where again coming from motivation well if i'm a camp slave or a body servant and my master is dead well that's my get out of war free card and I'm, would think, I am going to yeah. take his body back just to make sure that my own family is okay but perhaps and i yeah that's absolutely I, I couldn't i you said it perfectly i mean i think that's absolutely right um, the death of a master raises all kinds of questions for that enslaved individual. Um, do you run off? Um, if you have a family back home, what happens to them? Um, what obligation do you have to bring that, that body back? Um, do you bury it or do you try to bring it back, you know, depending on how far you have to travel? Um, and then, of course, how do you get the body back, right? I mean, all kinds of challenges that these men uh, have to face uh, in the event of of losing of of the, of the master uh, losing his life on the battlefield. Um, yeah, it's and again, these are the kinds of questions that it would have been really it would have been nice to be able to to answer. But I don't really claim to have any answers uh, when it comes to those specific experiences because I, look, I'm a middle aged white man. I mean, what experience could I possibly bring given that I don't have any um, you know, archival, uh, the, the relevant archival material handy, uh, could I bring to sort of even beginning to understand what that experience must have been like? Uh, none at all. Um, so it's, you just leave it. You have to know when to leave it. Yeah, because, it, you know, being, like I said, being the devil's advocate, you could look at this same, the same thing that you just said. There also could be, a re there, are, there are other reasoning for doing it was, and this is what I think people are doing. I think people are, thinking with today's mind ah. and 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 applying it to yesterday's life. Yes. So with oh. that being said, you can't sit up here and say when you're looking at our black, white, Hispanic, Chinese, American soldiers, and that's my brother. That's what they're saying right now. That's my brother. I'm going to take care of him. Yeah. So they're looking at these same people and saying that a brother bond was created during this war yeah and this is why they were where they were what makes you think that that didn't happen and i can actually understand them coming with that but in the same instance i have extra stuff that i have to think about in order for me to move forward so my mind won't let me like i'm trying to be the devil's advocate i'm trying to understand the other side but because I think like you do, 
Yeah. I'm also at the but what about this and what yeah. about my children or what yeah. about my family? Yeah. So I see where their point comes in, but then I also see the other side that it's like you're purposely not paying attention to, in my uh, opinion. No, so, I think you're absolutely right. And I think I think you hit on it in the beginning of your point, um, which is that a lot of people today, the mistake they make, and I think this is a mistake the neo-Confederates make, although they'll never admit this, uh, and that is that they are judging the past through the lens of the present. Yes. And I think, you know, if you're going to be serious about history, I, I don't want to suggest for a moment that we can be perfectly objective. I think we bring... Um, however much we try to put it aside, we do bring our own baggage to, to the study of history and, and how we, the kinds of questions we ask and how we go about interpreting individual documents and documents taken together. That's unavoidable. But it does seem to me that a lot of the myth-making that goes on today is a very conscious attempt to reconcile the past with the present. So the, the myth, I think, of this kind of you know friendship evolving loyal slave narrative that people love to embrace today is a way to reinforce your own assumptions about the racial divide. So if you if you have any urge today to push aside the racial divide, if whatever reason, and I'll just I don't want to get too political here, but a lot of the people who embrace this narrative tend to be politically conservative. And I think it has to do with a a a need to minimize, if not push away, the reality of racism in America today. And if you can reference a point in the past, especially the Confederacy, where you believe that black and white people, in fact, got along, uh, in fact, you know, uh, took part in an experiment, uh, the Confederacy becomes sort of this um, experiment in civil rights around this black Confederate myth, then in a way, what you end up being able to do is marry the past with the present. It was peaceful back then. That must mean that the people who are stoking the racial divide, they're the problem today. Hmm. It's, not a, it's not a historically rooted problem, racism in America today. Exactly. It's one that has been fabricated by activists, whether it's Black Lives Matter or other people who have a political stake in stoking the racial divide. And I think that's, that's obviously a huge, huge problem uh, because, of course, the history is wrong. Right. And if, in fact, the opposite is the case, if we are going to have any chance of dealing with the racial divide today, we at least have to be able to come to terms with that past. That's right. right? Uh, get over some of those deeply embedded myths um, that have been driving us for so long. Yeah. Well, two things, and I hope I have time to cover both in the, the 10 minutes <laughs> that we have. Um, Donning and I have been researching an ancestor who, well, actually a couple of ancestors who were very active after the Civil War with um, vo uh, fighting voter repression. Ah. And I just was thinking about specifically what you guys were talking about today about Mississippi. And again, I guess my perspective, having just had that conversation about perspectives, is if the Black um, body servants and uh, camp slaves service had been of value, why would the men going back, you know, the enslavers going back home then turn around to try to deny them the vote? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's a, I, yeah, I get that question quite often. And I think it speaks to the obvious point here, and that is um, that you have to understand 
that the goal of the Confederacy was basically one thing. It was to preserve the institution of slavery and a white racial hierarchy, right? And that remained the goal of white Southerners after the war, uh, especially after Reconstruction ends, after the military pulls out of the, the post-war South by 1877. And I think, you know, in that period that gets us into the Jim Crow era and legalized segregation, and as I, as I sketch out in the book, uh, the, the memory of these, um, in camp, these camp slaves is absolutely vital to maintaining that, that, that Jim Crow hierarchy, because if you can argue, as they did, if you can argue that these black men were loyal uh, to the Confederacy and their masters, and they remained loyal to their masters even after the war, and so think about these reunions uh, that take place, these Confederate veterans reunions that take place throughout the turn of the 20th century, they're taking place at a time when there's a great deal of racial unrest, uh, where the white South is trying to solidify its control over its black population. And to have these former camp slaves attend these veterans reunions as former camp slaves, still loyal to the old South and the Confederacy as a whole, still loyal to their masters, then they can actually use them as symbols of how African-Americans generally should behave. Know your place in this racial hierarchy, hmm. be deferential to, to white people generally, and you will be rewarded because these are some of the same men that are given pensions in the 1920s, right? At a time when the state gives very little money out to anyone. Um, so the memory of these men is absolutely crucial uh, to maintaining uh, a white racial hierarchy or white supremacy uh, throughout the Jim Crow era uh, and into the 20th century. That's why it's so powerful, I think, still to this day. And one other point, um, just to get your, your viewpoint on this one, and it has something to do about gun control. So going back to the 18th century, especially in slave-owning societies in, in this country, there were black codes. And it yep. didn't matter if you were free or enslaved. In places like Virginia, for instance, it was illegal yep. for you to own a gun. If you got caught with a gun, it was not going to end well for you. That's right. That's so right. So very definition of a serving soldier as we know it, and even contemporaries back then would have understood it, the, the thought of a black man, much less an enslaved black man with a rifle, was anathema. Yeah. So how do they get around, how do people get around that one? Oh, well, they, they do it very easily. They, they just don't know their history, right? Uh, so they don't have to worry about getting around it, right? I mean, they're just ignorant of that fact. And I think you're, you're, I think, I think you're making a good point. But I want to take it a step further, because I think you're absolutely right in the context of the Confederacy. But I want, to, I want to sort of stretch that out a bit because I think it's important to remember that the United States didn't recruit black men either in 1861, right? In fact, it's not until 1863 that black men begin serving in the Union Army uh, until 1865. And obviously some of the reason for that, I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but certainly the racism that's pervasive in the North is going to push back against the idea of arming black men, whether they're enslaved or not. Right, regardless of whether they're born free in the United States. And I think the fact that they did eventually in 1863, and the fact that they were allowed to help save the Union and slavery, that fact is what creates all the challenges that we continue to face. Because again, slavery doesn't end in the United States because white Americans come to this sort of moral awakening at some point. Slavery ends because the war dragged on 
and the United States needed bodies to fill those uniforms. And if you're going to fill those uniforms with black men, then you have to deal with the consequences of what that means in a post-war America. What does that mean in terms of citizenship? What does it mean in terms of civil rights? And what does it mean that you have now created a foundation, a cultural foundation of armed black men? I think that image of the armed black man is not just a fear in the South. I think it's a fear throughout the United States that's gonna take us into uh, the 20th century, even to present day America. The idea, I mean, take it to the civil rights movement. What were most white Americans most uncomfortable with? The more militant side of the civil rights movement, yeah. right? African Americans who were going to not take the peaceful route, think of King, right? right? But we're they gonna take the more, that. perhaps, in their eyes, something that might lead to outright violence. And so the idea of, of black people as violent, I think is something that, that this country as a whole um, certainly has to take stock of in terms of the long history and memory of that specifically. So I, I think you're raising a really important important point. I, I think that you, you just started another show. <laughs> because that's just like a whole nother thing. But I wanted to... Yeah. Um, just acknowledge our our um what is our audience because I had one person Janice who made a comment saying that she um had the pension file for one of her ancestors and he had to fight for most of the rest of his life to receive his pension. Yeah. So you you kind of covered covered a lot of the things and they all were very even though I don't really have the time to read them out to you, but they were very agreeable to what you were saying and and. I'm just so glad that you were able to come on the show and have this discussion about your book. And um, it's a very good book. And I'm I'm so glad you have it. I have one question. If you can answer it very quickly. I'll try. <laughs> How can this book be used for genealogical purposes? Yeah, I think just to hit at a point I was saying earlier, I think if it provides historical context to understanding some of the documents that people might find. Uh, specifically, trying just to understand the actual roles that black people played in the Confederate Army. Anything that steers us away from, you know, from falling for this myth of black soldiers, I think is a good thing. And so trying to understand perhaps how history sh gets shaped, but also how that gets sort of manipulated in the past maybe sort of um, may allow researchers to always have, trying to say, reinforces the importance of research, researchers going in with the warning light always on, right? Always be sort of wary of what you're looking at. Make sure that you're, you're properly interpreting the context of any specific document, because I think this is an example that shows what happens when you get led astray yes. uh, from the actual history, right? So I hope that made sense. Yes, I was trying to encapsulate it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I know one book, if you ever, if you ever fancy having a go at it, I have a lot of Southern enslaved ancestors who did run off and they fought for the Union and then they went back home. And I want to know what, what, what life was like for them the right. day after they went back. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But thank you so much, Kevin, thank you. for joining us. This was great. And everybody, here's the book. <laughs> it you. is on Amazon. It is on Barnes and Noble. And is there anywhere else we can find it? 
Yeah, no, it's at all, you know, you can find it in the bookstores, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, yeah, all the all the normal places. All the normal places. So yeah. please purchase it, Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's most persistent myth. You already have one person who says they're getting your book. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, and we look forward to talking with you more. Maybe come back and... Anytime. And talk about Reconstruction, because we are yes. looking for... We're looking for someone to do that, Kevin. So you might be that man. Happy to help out. Okay. So thank you once again for joining us. Thank you to all of our audience for spending your Sunday with us. And we look forward to seeing you next week at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yes. Um, the next week's show is November 3rd, right? Is that November 3rd? We'll post it. What's next week's date? Oh, no, we have to post that one. That's right. Okay. So thank you. Yes. Once again, loving you. This was awesome. And we, I, you, do you remember me calling you my boyfriend on Twitter? <laughs> because you was, you just went off on somebody. And I was like, Kevin Levin has just become my boyfriend on Twitter. So I'm, I'm, you know, I look forward to just just your post and everything. Thanks again, Kevin. I, I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot. <laughs> take, care. Right, take care. Take care. All right, you guys. Love you. We're off. It's three minutes till and...